Won't you please take your Bibles and uh, turn to Revelation chapter 15. Uh, We're going to be resuming our series in the book of Revelation this morning, and we're going to look together at Revelation 15 and 16 today, Uh, but we're just going to read chapter 15 now from verse 1 through to chapter 16, verse 1, and then we'll uh, look at the rest uh, as we get to it a little bit later in the message. So it will come up on the screen before you, but I would encourage you to read uh, in your own Bibles as we're only going to look at half of the passage uh, or read half of the passage now that we're going to be considering this morning. But let's read together from verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Just so far in our reading this morning, um, you may also want to take out your diagram that I gave you at the beginning of the series just to kind of reorientate yourself. I'll mention that in a minute. If you didn't get a diagram or you don't have one, you've lost it, they are some more uh, on the visitor's table and at the info desk. Um, And could I just say, if if perhaps you are joining Honey Ridge or visiting Honey Ridge in the last couple of weeks or months and you weren't here at the beginning of our series... um, The book of Revelation is a difficult book, and it's a complicated book, Uh, and so I would really just encourage you, if you plan to stick around till the end of the series, just go back and listen to the first one in the series where I try to explain the landscape uh, of Revelation, where I try to explain the diagram uh, that helps us through the series, and I I trust that that would be a, a benefit to you. But A few weeks ago, uh, I was standing outside between services over a cup of coffee, and someone came to me and said, Clinton, I can't wait to get to the end of the book of Revelation. Um, And I initially was quite taken aback by the apparent dislike um, for the series so far, and I think they could see the look of awkwardness on my face, um, because they quickly went on to explain that what they meant was that they can't wait to get to the last few chapters of the book of Revelation, particularly chapters 19 to 22, 
where the scene shifts away from what we've been looking at uh, over the last number of weeks, the, the dark images of, of judgment and satanic activity on the earth, and it shifts towards those wonderful scenes of the, the marriage feast of the Lamb and the glories of the new heavens and the new earth. And so my heart certainly resonates with that. I can't wait to get to those last few chapters of this book and to explore, and I hope in a, in a fresh new way, the, the wonders of what God has in store for us who are his people. But we can't skip over these chapters. These are God's word. They are written to us and, and for us, and God still has more to reveal to us in the next four chapters in order to rightly understand and rightly appreciate uh, the glories that will come at the end of this book when we view them in their correct biblical light. And so last time, if you were with me in this series, uh, we looked at chapter four, we, uh, 14. We spent most of our time considering that great and terrible day of the Lord, that day in which Jesus Christ returns. And we saw that there was a day of great harvest, two harvests in fact. Firstly, there was a harvest of all the wheat, uh, a symbol for the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who were gathered to the Lord himself with praise and worship on Mount Zion for all eternity. And then there was a second great harvest, the harvest of the wicked. And we saw that it was those who had rejected Jesus Christ in this life. They were part of this harvest of ripe grapes that were then thrown and trodden in the great winepress of God's wrath. And that brought us to the end of the fourth cycle of visions in Revelation. I explained at the beginning that the book of Revelation is structured as a series of seven parallel visions, each one um, taking us from the entire period of world history, from the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to the second. And so today we are going to start and, and hopefully complete the fifth cycle of visions as we look at chapter 15 and 16 together. But what you will notice is that as you read the New Testament, the New Testament authors are clear that we are currently living in what the Bible calls the last days. And so because of that, what we are reading about today is just as relevant to us as the Honey Ridge Baptist Church in 2022 as it was for those original seven churches at the beginning of the last days to whom this letter was originally written. You'll also recall if you've been around for some time that I uh, explained and it's depicted on your diagram at the very bottom of the page that as we progress down through these seven visions, what we will see is that the symbols and the signs uh, intensify as we get towards uh, the later visions, as we move closer in world history to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this especially becomes clear in the last three visions, the the fifth cycle that we're going to look at today, and then in the weeks ahead, the sixth and the seventh cycles, which still remain. But as we come to consider this topic today of the seven bowls of the plagues of God's wrath, while we will certainly see shadows and, and elements of these plagues of God's wrath at work throughout the history of the church, what we notice in this fifth vision is definitely a shifting in intensification to the time just before or leading up to the day of the return of Jesus Christ as he brings 
this world to an end. Now, last time, if you were with us in chapter 14, I did mention that whenever we as Christians try to speak about the reality of hell, that, that hell is a place of, of God's eternal punishment for sinners, we get all kinds of postmodern uh, objections thrown at us. Modern atheistic proponents try to make a public mockery uh, of the Bible's teaching on hell uh, in order to try and just kind of write off Christians and Christianity as primitive um, and really irrelevant to the enlightened mind of the 21st century. For example, when we lived in London a couple years back in 2009, uh, the famous atheist Richard Dawkins, he partnered with a, a massive humanist organization uh, and advertising campaign, which was plastered across all the London buses and all the London underground subway trains with this slogan. There it is. Uh, there is probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. There's the man himself admiring uh, his advertising campaign. Now, I love the fact that even the world's leading atheist, which by definition means that he does not believe there is a God, had to include the word probably in his campaign slogan. But nevertheless, the, the slogan was so successful that it was extended across the whole of the UK and even then adopted by humanist organizations across the world. And so buses in all languages around the world portrayed the slogan. But do you see the spirit behind this campaign? If there is no God, then there's no day of judgment. If there's no day of judgment, then there's no hell. And if there's no hell, well then eat, drink, and be merry today because tomorrow you may die. Richard Dawkins is so committed, in fact, to these views that he went on to say that for us to teach children to believe in punishment of sin in hell is the very worst form of child abuse. And then other voices from this popular atheist movement, and it really is a, a movement to try and evangelize people to their belief system, we have people claiming that the, etern the doctrine of eternal punishment in hell is proof that the author of the book of Revelation was an obviously sick mind filled with deluded fantasies. Now what makes this even worse is that sadly today, much in what we call broadly Christianity around the world today, there are even pastors and scholars who openly deny the doctrine of hell saying that it goes against the teaching of Jesus to love your enemies. Now, contrary to all of that, the whole message of the Bible and the book of Revelation in particular, it shouts out the exact opposite to us. The book of Revelation says there absolutely is a God, so start worrying and enjoy eternity. That is what Revelation 15 and 16 is about. And so let's come and see what, what this God, our holy and righteous God, our perfect, just God, what he wants us to know about this day of wrath uh, which is coming. And so in the first place this morning, I want us to see the source of God's wrath. 
We're going to jump around a little bit today because there are some parallel ideas drawn from different parts of these two chapters. But we see in chapter 15, verse 1, that John sees another sign in heaven. It's a new vision, which is great and amazing, of seven angels with seven plagues. And he tells us that these are the last which bring the wrath of God to completion. Now let's read again from verse 5. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues. These angels were clothed in pure bright linen, golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures who we remember are surrounding the throne gave to these seven angels golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. We are told at that moment that the, the sanctuary was filled with smoke the glory from the, the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until these seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So we are told here three times in these verses, that the bowls of the plagues represent the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God that is poured out on the earth. The source of this punishment is God himself. But this is made specifically clear as we see verses five to seven, that these angels proceed out of the very presence of God himself they are clothed in all that represents God, pure white linen, a gold sash around their chest. They represent God, and as they proceed from his presence, one of the four living creatures gives them each a, a golden bowl, and we are told that each bowl was full of the wrath of the eternal God. And then God himself, because the, the sanctuary is empty, no one could enter the sanctuary. From the, the sanctuary itself, God speaks, telling these angels to go and pour out his wrath upon the earth. So John's vision leaves absolutely no room for confusion as to the source of God's wrath. The eternal punishment that is coming upon the earth is from God himself. We are told that he is the eternal, amazing, almighty, all-powerful God. We know that he dwells in unapproachable light. He's the judge of all the earth. He's the one who's filled these bowls with his wrath against all that is sinful. And he instructs now that these bowls are to be poured out on the wicked of the earth. Now perhaps... One of the reasons that we don't see many conversions to Jesus Christ these days is because if we are honest, largely speaking, we as Christians have become embarrassed about this truth. We are embarrassed that the God of the Bible, who is the holy creator to whom every soul must and will give an account, he is the one who says that the wages of sin is death. And all who sin will face his eternal wrath and punishment in hell forever. We're embarrassed about this. And so instead, when we do manage to tell someone that they need to be saved, the typical response that we get is, saved from what? And then we come up with all kinds of pathetic answers. Well, you need to be saved from yourself, 
to which the self-made successful person with a great job and a happy marriage and obedient children, he, he replies, I, I love myself and I'm pretty good at looking after myself. I don't need to be saved from me. That's ridiculous. To which we might reply, well, what I really mean is that you need to be saved from your sins. To which the, the self-loving person replies, I love my sins. What you Christians call sin, I call fun. And if my fun doesn't hurt anybody else, what's the problem? I don't need saving from that. To which we might still have one more opportunity to try and reply and say, well, what I actually mean is that you need to be saved from the devil and his destructive influence in your life. To which the response is usually one of dismissive condescension, that the devil is no more real or destructive than the boogeyman in fairy tales. And so we walk away defeated, maybe telling the person we'll pray for them. You see, without realizing it, if, if what I've just described sounds familiar to you, then we have subconsciously embraced the liberal view of God and salvation, which says a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. God forbid that we would distort the message of the Bible like that. You see, in contrast to this pathetic version of the gospel, which really is no gospel at all, the only true and right response when you and I are asked by someone, saved from what, is to say to them, you need to be saved from God. Revelation 15 and 16 reveals that the source of all wrath and judgment to come is God himself. He's great and amazing, he's almighty, he's just and true, he is the king of the nations and he alone is holy. When this God comes in judgment, who can stand? When he exposes your heart on that day, every thought, every word, every action, his wrath will burn against you and you will be consumed by his holy judgment. So this leads me to the question which our text seeks to answer, namely, who exactly will come under this wrath of God? And so in the second place, I want us to see the universal nature of God's wrath. We now get to the account in chapter 16 of these seven angels going out and pouring their seven bowls of, of the plagues of God's wrath onto the earth. And, and what you will see as we scan through that is that what is common across each of the bowls is the universal nature of God's wrath. God's wrath affects every single square inch of the entire earth. All of creation is struck but most specifically, every single human being who has not been sealed by the Lamb, every single person whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, every person who bears the mark of the beast will come under the judgment of God. Not one person will escape. The day of God's wrath is universal. 
Now again, we must recognize the highly symbolic nature of Revelation. Take you back to my first sermon on that, if you're unfamiliar with what I'm speaking about. I think we must avoid here a, a highly literalistic understanding of these plagues or to try and interpret them in a purely literalistic way. I think what we are meant to see here is both a very clear parallel with the plagues of Egypt. You'll see that almost all of the plagues that we have in this chapter 16 have a parallel to the plagues in Egypt. As God poured out on Pharaoh and, and Egypt, his wrath. But we also see a very clear connection with what we previously looked at with the seven trumpets in the third cycle. What were seven trumpets of warning back in the third cycle now become seven bowls uh, of God's judgment uh, in this fifth cycle. But let's try and understand the big picture as we just skim over these bowls being poured out. Let's see in the first place, the first bowl in verse two. Now let me just read that to you. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. So in verse two, we see that every single unbeliever on this earth is struck with harmful and painful sores. All those who had the mark of the beast who worshiped his image, and we've seen previously that that is every human being outside of Jesus Christ. If you are not marked with the seal of the lamb, you are already marked with the beast, and this judgment will come upon you. The second bowl we see in verse three, that the angel pours out his bowl on the oceans, and the oceans are struck, and as the waters congealed like the blood of a dead corpse, all sea life is destroyed. Then the third bowl in verse four, we see that all the source of life on earth Namely, fresh water is struck by the third bowl, and all the rivers and all the underground springs turn to blood. Then the fourth bowl is in verse eight. We see another source of life on earth. The fresh water's already been struck. Now the sun is struck, but not struck into darkness. We are told in verse eight that when the angel poured out his bowl on the sun, it became intensified, its heat became so great that people on the earth were scorched with fire. Then the fifth bowl in verse 10, we see the fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Now that needs to take you back a couple weeks. We saw that the beast was the agent of the dragon who is at work in this world through governments and powers and authorities. All those who are uh, in a position of influence in this world. We are told that they are struck and plunged into darkness. They brought to nothing by the fifth bowl. And then the sixth bowl we see in verse 12. The angel pours out his bowl on the river Euphrates. Now this is a, a clear symbol for that river which separated the land of Israel from all the pagan territories to the east. And we are told that the river dried up so that the nations, the enemy nations, those who are set against God and his people might gather for battle against the people of God. At this point in verse 13, John sees the dragon who we know is Satan. He's behind this global gathering as unclean, demonic spirits like frogs 
proceed from the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. They, they come together and they go to all the kings of the world to gather them for battle on this great day of God Almighty. And then look at the end uh, at verse 16, chapter 16, verse 16. We are told there that they assembled at a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, just a quick aside here. I don't want us to get distracted this morning. It's just to mention that this is the only time in the New Testament where this name, Armageddon, is mentioned. And the Hebrew that it's referring to is cryptic. The best scholars will acknowledge that. It's either referring to Har Megiddo, the, the mountain of Megiddo, or it's referring to another Hebrew construction, the Mount of Assembly, the Mount of Gathering. Now, Megiddo in the Old Testament was a prominent place for various battles between the people of God and the pagan nations, but Megiddo was a large valley, a large plain. And so it would seem strange for John to refer to Megiddo here as a mountain. More likely, the Hebrew translation of the Mount of Gathering or the Mount of Assembly refers to what Zechariah tells us in chapter 12 and chapter 14, that the final battle between God and all his enemies will take place in Jerusalem. And so this is most likely a reference to the Mount of Assembly being a symbolic reference to the Mount of Zion in Jerusalem. And we're going to investigate this battle, this final battle in more detail in chapter 19 and 20. I just thought I would uh, move past that reference to Armageddon because it comes today with a whole host uh, of associations which really are not based in Scripture. And then we come to the seventh bowl, verse 17. And we see that the seventh angel pours out his bowl into the air or into the heavens, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, the greatest earthquake to ever strike the earth, and a loud voice from the temple in heaven said, it is done. It's done. This description of the seventh bowl, if you've been part of this series, should sound very familiar to the final day of judgment as we've seen a number of times already in each of those little yellow blocks at the end of each cycle of visions, we've been brought to that day of final judgment. But the description here is almost identical to chapter 6, verse 12, to chapter 8, verse 5, and again to chapter 11, verse 19, as God brings an end to the world as we know it. These chapters give us another description of the final day of the Lord's judgment from a different perspective. Another layer of bright, colorful paint has been put down on the canvas as the picture of the final judgment becomes clear. And then the last few verses, verses 19 to 21, go on to describe the final end of this great and terrible day of the Lord's judgment. We see this in terms of, of Babylon made to drink the, the cup of the wine of God's wrath. Uh, please come back next week as we explore this prostitute Babylon. We also see here all the great cities of the world are destroyed. Nature itself crumbles under the final judgment of God as we are told that islands flee into the sea and the mountains of the earth disappear. And then we are told that hailstones are half a meter in diameter weighing almost 50 kilograms, fall to the earth and destroy all who remain. 
Those who were not previously killed by the plagues of sores or starvation or dehydration or the scorching heat of the sun, they are struck down by these hailstones. The parallels with the plagues of Egypt here are striking as we see that God not only struck Pharaoh back in Egypt, but he struck all his people and he struck the whole land of Egypt for one purpose. Why did God do that? So that he might redeem his people from out of Egypt so that they might go and worship him. He took them out from slavery, from captivity, so that they might be free to worship him. Now that was a a shadow. It's a historical event. It took place back in Exodus. But it was a shadow in terms of the storyline of the Bible of this final day of God's deliverance of his people as he strikes now the dragon and his allies, as he strikes all the people who follow him, and then he strikes the whole earth, that God's judgment against sin and wickedness and evil would be complete so that God's people would be redeemed to spend all eternity on his holy mount, worshiping him forever. Now, As you've been considering this morning this universal and terrifying nature of God's wrath, of God's judgment, as these bowls are being poured out so violently. I mean, if you go home and read it, don't just skim over it. Ponder what is being said here. Every human being who has not bowed the knee to Christ in repentance and faith will be destroyed. You might be tempted to ask me the question, Clinton, is this fair? It seems too terrifying for me to consider. Well, John's vision does not want us to wonder about the answer. And so in the third place, I want us to see the holy justice of God's wrath. Twice in this terrible vision of these seven bowls of wrath, John's attention shifts from the scene on the earth to the realm of heaven. First in chapter 15, verse 2 to 3, he sees the saints in heaven. And then in chapter 16, verse 5 to 7, he he hears the voice of a, a great angel. And in both cases, John sees and he hears the same thing, that all of these judgments of God's holy wrath are just and true. Look at verse 2. He looks into heaven. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered. The sea of glass here is a symbol of peace and tranquility where previously the sea was a place of chaos and and the beast. And we think even back to Exodus, it was the sea that that crushed the Pharaoh and, and and his army. But here in heaven, the saints stand around a crystal sea. It's It's calm, peace reigns. And all those who had conquered the beast and his image stand beside the sea of glass with harps in their hands. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? They baffled. The saints in heaven are baffled that there are people on earth who do not recognize and fear God and give him glory. For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. What an incredible perspective this gives us on the scene which unfolds in this vision. 
The saints of God in heaven, everyone who's been sealed by the Lamb, they stand around the throne and they sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Just as the Israelites gathered after that passage that Cliff read to us earlier, as they gathered on the other side of the Red Sea, having witnessed their salvation, and they sang a song of praise to God, so we have these saints standing on the other side of history, looking back around the calm crystal sea, and they sing praises to God for His great and awesome salvation. Now please note that they do not delight in the destruction of the wicked. God makes it clear in his word that he takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. But what we see them here is they are rejoicing in the character of God. They praise him for being almighty, the king of the nations, that his ways are just and true, that he alone is holy, that he alone deserves all the glory, that he alone is to be worshipped. And then in verse 4 to 7 of chapter 16, we see the same truths being echoed by a great angel who is in charge of all the waters. You don't really know what that means, but it comes straight after the sea has been struck and, and everything has been killed in the sea. And then all the rivers and the springs have been struck and they turn to blood. This angel who is in charge of the waters on the earth, he says in verse 5, chapter 16, verse 5, just are you. O holy one who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, if you're making notes in your Bible, please make a cross-reference to Revelation chapter six, verse nine. Next to verse seven here. There's a, a strong reminder of those martyrs, those souls of those Christians who had been slain for their testimony in Christ. Just like we've watched in this video, persecuted Christians. We saw back in chapter six, verse nine, that these souls were under the altar and they were crying out, Lord, how long before you avenge our blood on, on those who've taken our lives on the earth? And God tells them to wait, wait patiently. More will still be added to their number through history. But here we see God's final response on the day of judgment. Justice for the martyrs has been issued. In both of these glimpses into heaven on this great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath, we hear the same truths being echoed. Great and amazing are your deeds. You alone are holy just and true are your ways. There will not be one person who spends eternity in hell under this terrible judgment of God, not one person who A, didn't choose to be there. I'm all for the free will of man. There will not be one person in hell who did not choose to be there. And secondly, there will not be one person in hell who receives a punishment that they do not deserve. God is just and he is true. His judgments are holy and righteous altogether. The wages of sin is death and each person will get what they deserve. 
So we need to bring our time to a close. But if we ended here, well, we'd have a a clearer picture of the universal nature of God's wrath. We would even have a a clearer picture, I hope, of God's judgment and, and and the God of judgment, that he's perfect and holy and powerful. But if we ended here this morning, I think we would miss the whole point of these two chapters. And so in the final place this morning, I want us to see the gospel purposes of God's wrath. You see, knowing the source of God's wrath and the universal nature of God's wrath and the holy justice of God's wrath, it is of no value to us whatsoever unless we understand the gospel purposes of God's wrath. You see, what we have in these chapter is a vision of your and my future. This is not a historical account of something that happened in the past. And the reason that God has given us such a clear and terrifying description of this future day of judgment is so that we would respond in the present with repentance and faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We would receive his seal on our lives, that our names would be written in the Lamb's book of life, that we might be spared this terrible and eternal end. You and I are doing no unbeliever any good whatsoever by hiding these truths from them. Because God has written these truths so that just like you and I repented, they might repent and come to saving faith. Look at verse 9 of chapter 16. Please read that slowly with me. As those were being scorched by the heat and the fire of the sun... We read in chapter 16, verse 9, they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. There can be no sadder description of any person who is still alive than those words. They cursed God and did not repent. Again in verse 11, we see the same thing. All the powers and the authorities of this world are crumbling down under the plague of the fifth bowl. And as people realize that all that they've looked to for value and worth, money, success, power, influence, fame, control, it's all been plunged into darkness with the beast. Look at what John says. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Once again, we're given this most devastating description of the Richard Dawkins of this world. People who who shake their fists at God. Self-made men and women who worship the creation instead of the creator. We are told that at the very end they gnaw their tongues in anguish and pain, but instead of turning to God for salvation, they curse God and they refuse to repent. This tragic picture of the blindness and the, and the slavery of sin is seen right up until the very end. Look at the seventh angel as he pours his bowl into the air and, and the cosmos is busy collapsing. Islands and mountains are disappearing into the sea. 50 kilogram hailstones the size of beach balls are falling and crushing people around them. 
It's a graphic image. It's terrifying. Those who remain, we are told, continue, in verse 21, to curse God. Can I appeal to any one person here today who is currently in a state of unrepentance before God? Please see the gospel purposes of God in giving you this very terrifying glimpse of your eternal destiny if you do not repent. You may think you're a good person. You may think you don't need saving from anything. But you're wrong. You're wrong. God's word declares you to be deceived. Paul writes in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one You are a sinner, I am a sinner, and we need to be saved by grace from the hand of a holy God who's coming in judgment. Hebrews 10 verse 31 says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So if you are cursing God today, It may not be an outward cursing, it may not be an outward shaking of your fists, but you're cursing God by rejecting his free offer of salvation to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then unless you repent and turn to Jesus for forgiveness, you will continue to curse uh, curse God on the day of his visitation. But in God's sovereign purposes, I would like to propose that you are the intended recipient of his grace today. How do I know that? Because you are here and you're not dead. And he's given you ears, ears to hear, eyes to see and read this warning, this gospel call to, to repent and live if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, that's where the words of Jesus are in red. What you will notice in verse 15, just before, at the end of the six bowls and just before the seventh bowl is poured out, before the final end comes, we see the gospel heart of Jesus just bursting onto the scene of John's vision in verse 15. In my Bible, it's in brackets. The translators don't even know what to do with it. It just comes out of nowhere. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Now this call of Jesus is in the context of what John has already said, but what he will particularly say next week in in the context of Babylon the prostitute. Babylon who has seduced the world with all her pleasures and lies. And Jesus cries out in the middle of this vision, do not be seduced. I'm coming soon. Yes, unannounced, when you least expect it. So stay alert, stay awake, be ready for my coming, says Jesus, lest I arrive, and to paraphrase, I find you in bed with the devil, and you will be exposed So can I close with the the plea of Joshua, Joshua to the people of God after they had come through the Red Sea. But very quickly, after seeing the salvation of God, we are told at Mount Sinai, they made a golden calf and climbed back into bed with the devil. So they spend 40 years in the wilderness 
until God brings them to the edge of Canaan. And Joshua says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live. Can I say a word to dads and moms here today? Your choice of life has a profound impact on whether you and your offspring will live. Your rejection of Christ in this world has a profound trajectory on your offspring whether they will also curse God. It's a fearful enough thing to stand before God because of your own cursing, but when God holds you accountable for the fact that you've led your children to curse him too, I don't wanna be there on that day. Joshua says, choose life that you and your offspring may live Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, eternal length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. If you don't know what it means to choose life today, please don't leave here until you've spoken to me or to any one of us to lead you to the lamb who was slain but he's now standing at the right hand of the majesty on high and he's coming again to judge this world. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, how gracious you are to a stubborn and rebellious people such as us. How we ask publicly as a church for forgiveness, for perhaps individually and even through some of the ministries of the church for having watered down the truths of your word. To not present the full picture of the holiness and the wrath and the justice of God before which we will all stand one day. And so as we've considered these terrible truths today, we want to thank you this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ, your perfect only begotten son, who came to this world and he lived that perfect life that we could never live and then went to the cross and bore in his body on the tree all the wrath and the anger and the punishment and the judgment of God that we deserved and will have to face for all eternity if we do not turn to Christ. Thank you that in him you remain just and true in terms of your holiness and at the same time loving and gracious and extending forgiveness to those of us who are in Christ. So Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit that the words of this passage of Scripture today might, for those who are believers, make us ever greater in terms of our appreciation for all that we have been spared and all that awaits us in our eternal glorious home with you. But Lord, for those who do not know you this morning, we pray that the Holy Spirit would do that work of teaching and convicting and instructing, that they would recognize their hopelessness outside of Christ and would come to Jesus today. We pray this for your name and for the extension of your kingdom, we pray. Amen.